Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and... Take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. We're bunkering down for yet more snow for the next couple of days. You know, How are you sitting? <laughs> you should have looked into that before you moved to the Dakotas. The snow is just part of living here, my friend. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that we're bunkering down again just because we we've, we've gotten such a volume of it in a short period of time. It's not the snow, it's the, you know, up to my hip in two days. Snow. <laughs> well, you just be thankful that you're self-hosting everything and so there's no reason to leave your house. I am very thankful to be here. All right. Today, it's going to be an exciting episode. We have Dr. Doug Milburn. He is the president and founder of 45 Drives. Also, their lead storage architect, Mitch Hall, will join us in the program. We have a lot to get to, so we're going to mix it up a little bit, do things a little out of order. First, we'll head over to the Linux Newswire newsroom and get the latest from JT. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Red Hat has announced that their build of OptiPlanner, an open-source constraint solver, is now available in the Red Hat Application Foundations. The Cloud Native Computing Foundation has accepted Cubescape as its inaugural open-source security scanner. Kodi version 12, named Nexus, is out and adds support for AV1. The team behind GNU Cache is preparing their new 5.0 release, and they have announced some of the new features that they are adding a new stock transaction assistance, and a new investment lots report for capital gains and losses. Libvert 9 has been released. The upcoming Unity 7.7 release will get a Unity X version with Wayland support. GNOME 42.8 will enable an atomic mode setting for NVIDIA cards and improves its Wayland support. The Endless OS team has announced the second beta of their upcoming 5.0 release. MX Linux 21.3 has been released, the third release in the Wallflower series. This release is based on Debian 11.6 Bullseye and ships with a Linux 6.0 kernel. Unfortunately for MX, the 6.0 kernel has just been end of life. While released in October of last year, the recent 6.0.19 update will be the last, and the kernel team is recommending that everyone upgrade to the 6.1 kernel branch. In other kernel news, a new privilege escalation vulnerability has been discovered in the Linux kernel, allowing a local user to execute code as root through a buffer overflow in the NetFilter subsystem. Greg KH has also created a new branch to remove the Microsoft RNDIS drivers from the kernel tree. RNDIS stands for Remote Network Driver Interface Specification and is a proprietary USB protocol for virtual Ethernet functionality. The System76 team has teased a new Pangolin Linux laptop that will come with a Ryzen 7 6800U CPU, up to 32GB of RAM, and up to 16TB of NVMe storage. And lastly, the creator, Jacob Krantz, has released an open-source smartwatch called ZSWatch and has shared all of the files and information needed for you to build your own on GitHub. Storage, it is a frequent topic of the show. Why? Because everybody needs it. Everybody uses it. And 45 Drives, the folks there, they know storage. They provide you with the best storage solutions for your data needs. Not the most expensive one. And today, they provide you with the most affordable enterprise class storage solutions in the industry. And joining us on the program, Dr. Doug Milburn. He is the president and founder of 45 Drives and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Welcome in, sir. Well, thank you very much, Noah. Glad to be here. Delighted to have you. Also with you is Mitch Hall, your lead storage architect. Welcome in, Mitch. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I'm excited. So I want to start by getting your background. Can you talk a little bit about 45 Drives? What is the company? Why did you start 45 Drives? Sure, long question, and sometimes I talk too much, but I'll try to make it a little concise. Uh, I'm a proud technical geek by background. I have two physics degrees, did a PhD in engineering after that. 
uh, a lot of applied research and pretty eclectic. Spent a lot of time uh, doing research to make things and measure things uh, over the years uh, and a lot of time building electronics and uh, doing software and programming and the like. That's my background. Uh, I am also have entrepreneur's disease, I guess you'd call it, and can't help thinking of the world entrepreneurially. I just love the whole world of entrepreneurship. Uh, somewhere along the way, uh, my uh, business partner and I, named Steve Lilly, started a company called Protocase. And I don't know if some of your listeners may recognize Protocase. Uh, we started Protocase to be infrastructure to build electronics enclosures, computer enclosures, parts, brackets, sheet metal parts, and machine parts. For, and, and lots of people do that, but we made up a business model that would look after people who are innovators and people that are scientists and engineers. Low volume, really fast, not to slow your thought process down. 45 drives spun out of that. And what happened? We had a company, I'll, I'll mention their name, and again, I, I bet you some people would recognize it. They're called Backblaze. Backblaze is a, now call them a cloud storage provider, but they're also a backup provider. They'll give you a little... Uh, uh, application that will run on your computer, various operating systems, and you can back your, keep your data backed up to their cloud. We met them in, you know, it was before 2010, I'm going to go 2008 maybe. They were a startup in their kitchen bootstrap startup, Silicon Valley. And they got us to help them design a very inexpensive, very high-density, top-loading uh, storage server which were called Backblaze servers eventually. They, they, they opened up their design. And uh, we started into this by, first of all, building enclosures for it, enclosures for them, uh, servers for them, and our, our mass custom manufacturing that we have. And then eventually uh, we married that. We went on our own set based on, on customers who bought these from us. Uh, and we married that with a very high-speed electrical architecture. Different from Backblaze, who are about speed wasn't critical. as cloud storage, redundancy, you know, even reliability was not critical for them. But we built uh, high reliability, high speed electrics into it. Uh, and an architecture we call direct wired. Uh, most high density storage servers use multiplexing. So one hard drive shares multiple uh, multiple hard drives sorry share one connection into the hba or you know sata ports or whatever you're using uh and we go direct wired uh it was netflix shared the, the the architecture they came to us to talk to us about building computers for us uh and we married the netflix well them and some other companies that talked to us in the, the same kind of architecture married that with these with the the idea of toolless top loading ultra high density uh servers you know, to come up with the hardware that we have. Started selling that. And anyway, long evolution from there into uh, becoming a full storage solutions provider that we are today based on open source. And compute so, even. At this and, and, and now into compute and into data destruction as yep, well. Yep. So that leads me into the idea of, okay, we've, we've got an idea of, of how you started, but we I was kind of wondering who the target market is when I when I look at the your website which is fairly easy to use by the way uh, you can configure a server from a couple thousand dollars over into several hundred thousand dollars depending on how much storage you put in there so I was kind of looking at that going I wonder who the target market for this is yeah you know it's interesting when you start up uh, you know often you know some people really start with a target market uh, and I guess what well, everybody does in a way, it, it was very, very horizontal when we started. It was anybody who wants big storage. Okay? And when we first started, uh, it was people, we didn't do software configurations, uh, service uh, to any extent back then. Uh, and it was very horizontal. And as we sold systems and see who bought, who bought, you know, who needs high density storage, who needs high performance storage, uh, and who and eventually open source, who buys that? But what's happened is over time, we've developed into, I'm going to call it four major uh, uh, market segments. Uh, and just to outline them quickly, one is in high-performance clustering. So very large storage clusters running on Ceph uh, and uh, organizations that 
uh, and they're pretty sophisticated organizations. We have a number of them. Typically, you know, the systems that they get us to build for them are quarter million dollars up to several million dollars. You know, biggest stuff is five million dollars. Uh, major clusters, tens of petabytes, uh, and take just vast data ingest rates. Uh, we have a customer. Uh, I'll give you one example in that segment, University of California, San Diego wildfire project. Uh, they run a Ceph cluster. Uh, I, I think they have 30 per- petabytes of clustering. Yeah, between I think uh, six Ceph clusters at this point. It's, it's yeah. six separate clusters. Yeah. And uh, anyway, their, their data ingest, you know, what, a year or something, they filled yeah, the better part of that. Oh, 10 petabytes, exactly. Um, yeah, and another one too, Vexel, for example. It's not uncommon for a cluster of theirs. They do uh, high-res imaging. And we've seen many, many times the cluster doing about 11, 12 gigabytes a second right, meanwhile reading about 7, 8 gigs a second, uh, and that's gigabytes per second. So very, very high throughput clusters for sure. So that's some stuff that that's our geekdom. That's, uh, you know, if you're in the auto world, that's the McLaren <laughs> or the Lamborghini customers, right? And, uh, and, and they're really cool. We love that stuff. Uh, let's go to another end. Uh, and... Uh, that would be video. So video is a really important segment for us. The organizations would range from one person. We have customers who are are one person video production operations uh, up to some major studios. Uh, On on the other end, uh, post mid-sized, a lot of mid-sized post-production houses. Uh, We'd have people, uh, organizations that do internal video, uh, you guys had New Spring Church on, great customer of ours, love interacting with them. Uh, they do their own video production. And uh, so, yeah, the, the video production world, uh, a lot of government and uh, federal government, military, uh, and we'll move into state government to some extent, uh, and municipal government as well. Municipal government, uh, real problem solver. Municipal governments have a real problem. They have policing. And they have things like traffic light cams, body cams, uh, forensic data, and they have all their municipal general file serving needs that they do. They have to manage so many different types of data from day to day. And and, uh, municipalities, uh, you know, their IT people just die and go to heaven when they get into (laughs) clustering. It it, it solves, you know, they they suffer from something that we call server zoo, where you end up, the organization start off with a storage server back in, 1910, as my <laughs> grandfather used to say, and that's got data on it, and they don't have budget to replace it. And then you get another storage server, another, another, another. NetApp, uh, uh, this or that. They've got all these different UIs. And, and every one of them is, uh, you know, it, it's mission critical because they need the data for yeah, it. Any one of them breaks it. down, and it's trouble. And when they move, make the leap to clustering, we do all kinds of stuff with them, like maybe just providing backup or whatever else. But the ones that jump the clustering, like I say they they die and go to heaven mm-hmm. when they do that. Uh, the mission critical is gone. All the forward motion, and you know their future path is clear, and they can become the old Maytag repairman commercials. Well, Doug, one of the things that they love and from hearing from us is once we build those clusters and we let them leverage their old hardware and bring it into the Ceph cluster, they never hear things like that, right? We allow these other vendor servers uh, to be able to come in and take part in the Ceph cluster to be able to expand it instantly once we deploy our hardware. So, so, so great track in that. Uh, and then the other one's sort of general file storage, yep. file system storage. We've got a bunch of other miscellaneous users, sure. but those are the, the, those are the, the big ones for us. Absolutely. So our, let's, uh, let's uh, jump off of something that Mitch was just talking about in terms of uh, the adding the servers to like, existing servers to a new Ceph cluster or whatever. Um, one of the things that when when you're talking about targeting a segment, one of the things that you think about is like, okay, well, how do you sell yourself? Like, what is your what is your value proposition? Like, why do why do clients choose 45 drives? Yeah. And, and again, that that's going to depend, uh, you know, uh, we, so we talk about that one and clustering. And again, we love clustering. Uh, it's half our business, single servers, half our business, too. Uh, clustering. Um, How about I narrow it down for you and say like, okay, um, let's take two of your market segments. So you mentioned like the, the municipality with the police or, or whatever. And I don't know, let's say marketing, um, let's say the, the video production, just, uh, give us a quick view, uh, overview of like why those people might choose you. Sure. Uh, let me, uh, let me do municipality first. 
uh, hypothetical municipality comes along and they got server zoo problem. They come in and talk to us, you know, and, and sometimes they'll just buy a backup server for us, whatever else. Uh, we got around to talk about clustering. And then they go, okay, so here's something you do with 45 drives, value proposition, 45 drives. When, if they want to move to clustering, the proprietary clustering, the big guys, the enterprise vendors, they don't have the budget for it. Okay. We're open source, open platform. So we're at pricing that typically looks like a fifth of the other options. So we meet their budget. Performance-wise, uh, uh, we perform every bit as good as any of the you know, enterprise. You know, it's, it's open source, open platform hardware. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's tops performance. And then we give them flexibility. We give them a lack of vendor lock-in. So the promise, there's no promise. We'll get you a cheap system in here, but you got to come for service. We're going to just, we got you by the pockets. They don't, they're on their own. So we get to do ongoing business with them if we're the best value for them. So they absolutely love that. Flexibility. If they need a hard drive, uh, if you're with, you know, Dell, for example, we have Dell customers telling us that they need to plug Dell hard drives into their Dell clusters. And if not, their warranty, I don't think they'll work with it. They actually flash their hard drives. Our stuff, completely open. You want to put somebody else's parts, you want to put somebody else's uh, hard drives in it, that's up to you. You want to get other service done, you want to do service yourself, we're 100% good. You buy from us what you want. You want to connect your old servers back into your new cluster and reuse that, great, we'll do that for you. So it, it's a pretty unique package of, of price, flexibility, perf and performance. And it just makes a whole lot of sense for, the, a lot of sense for those customers. And the last thing I would say is just our expertise, right? When it comes to uh, ZFS and Ceph clustering, for example, um, I mentioned this prior before we went on air, but Ceph has made it very, very easy, uh, made a very low barrier to entry to build a Ceph cluster and get a Ceph cluster into production. Um, but the problem with that low barrier to entry is it makes people feel well, they have a little uh, a false sense of confidence where mm. oh it's very easy I can I can now handle anything and then once they they get into a little bit of hot water they realize oh no I don't have a vendor <laughs> anymore uh, what do I do and so that's where we're ready to to, to pick it up for them uh, pick up the pieces and then hop right in with them and uh, and start troubleshooting and getting them back into a production ready state they like the and just let me just add to that, the fear of open source, you know, the biggest impediment, and, you know, we feel it when we go to sell, you get organizations, fun organizations, the Microsoft world, right? Uh, you know, most schools, their IT, they teach mostly Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So many organizations have Microsoft people and they go Linux. Mm -hmm. And, and it, there's a mystique around it because people know how solid it is. You know, people understand you know, even from a distance, understand the huge advantages to Linux. And you look at for storage, I mean, Microsoft is not even in the game performance-wise for storage. Um, and they know that. But what it's that, yeah, what happens if I don't have enough expertise? Am I on my own? Nobody owns it. And, you know, as you, you know from Red Hat, uh, you know, same thing, 45 drives. You come along. We are your source of knowledge. We'll get you over any hump. We're there for you. We need it. And we can take the fear out. The proprietary guys all say we're there, but we're there more than the proprietary guys are. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the difference between cloud and on-prem storage? Obviously, there's this push in the IT industry. You got to get to the cloud, got to get to the cloud. The cloud is safe. You don't have to. Man okay, fine. Got it. We need to move to the cloud. How does 45 drives, do you guys focus on on-prem? Do you focus on cloud? Do you focus on both? Well, you know, it, it's a great question. I love that question. And, uh, you know, that, you know, it's funny trends, right? I, I think of the Simpsons and uh, Mo and Moe's bars. It was family restaurants. Get to get a family <laughs> restaurant. The next thing you know, Barney and Homer are out in the street, right? So, so trends. Uh, I actually have a friend who's an entrepreneur, has a, uh, has a, uh, uh, it's a security company, a cybersecurity company that's totally cloud focused. He and I talk about that and I'm going, Darren, it's, uh, you know what, yes to the cloud, but no to the cloud. Mm -hmm. So here, here's the, the, the big dividing line. If you are a company, let, let me put some bookends here. Cloud works phenomenally. If you're a small company, at least a small data company, you got two terabytes of data that you care for. Uh, so it's data storage is not a big expense, whatever way you do it. The, the one-time hassle of 
buying, putting in, maintaining on-prem storage. It doesn't make sense. Put it on the cloud, right? And uh, it's affordable. And, uh, and as long as the access speed to the cloud is good for you. Let's flip over there. Let's talk about video. Uh, we actually, one of the, the, the mega cloud providers, video people, uh, buy stuff from us. Uh, and, uh, and they don't put it in the cloud. Why not? Because if you have, you know, like our company, we do video. We have 30 terabytes or something of, of video. You know, we're not a huge, mm-hmm. nowhere near huge on it. But if you have 30 petabytes, my rule of thumb, I look at it and I go, a 20 terabyte hard drive takes roughly 50 hours to go down a one gigabit pipe. Okay. And, uh, and, and, and plus or minus. And uh, you look at that and you go, well, what if you have 50 terabytes of data and what if you need it back? You know, how, how long do you have? I got, you know, 50 times, so I got 2,500 hours. Mm-hmm. And it, it just no longer makes sense. And then on top of it, if you compare cost, uh, when data gets large, if you have small data, your one-time costs, your fixed costs of operating a server dominate your people costs. When you're up into the 50 terabytes and above, uh, the cost of cloud storage uh, will dominate. And the payback, because we've looked at putting a model together and we've played around with it that, that would sell on-prem storage with fast access and, and, and a lower price but monthly payments. And we looked at it. And what we see is that the simple payback for having on-prem storage versus cloud, and this is for cold storage, because don't forget they charge for access. Okay? For cold storage is 10 months. And that payback for on-prem storage goes down rapidly if it's active data that you got to source. So really small data, you don't need fast access to. Cloud is brilliant. As soon as you get into big data, cloud is completely impractical when you get into big data, even to the point where the some of the cloud providers actually, well, you know, I mean, they do they do on-prem for their their big data stuff. Yeah, and then the in last part, I, I will typically think about it is like, well, what's your tolerance for putting the other infrastructure in the cloud? Because if you've got your data in the cloud and you need to access that regularly, well, now you have to put compute in the cloud and you have to pay for that and et cetera, et cetera. So it's all, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, especially when you're, you're dealing with a model like ours, I think, uh, and, and I mean, our customers have, have shown it time and time again, the value proposition of, of buying on-prem is just so much higher. Um, and it pays for itself so much quicker. For large data. Yes, exactly. And, and, right. and big compute. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about your commitment to open source? It's clear that you guys can do clustering and obviously you could leverage open source. Why do you choose to release a lot of the things that you do, if not all the things you do, into the open source community? Well, you know, it's brilliant. If you look at it, uh, if, it's a, if it's about looking after people's needs, I just think the open source model is so brilliant. Uh, you know, we human beings, social creatures, when we cooperate, uh, it, it just the, the level of what we achieve goes up dramatically. Uh, competition's good because competition makes us cooperate better in teams. So the two of them got to coexist. But open source software is just so cool. I just think on a human level that we get together, we have this need for software, that people have gone in and learned how to organize their cooperation so well that we can create projects like Linux or Ceph or so many other things where... Uh, you know, we contribute by creating some software. We put that out there, let other people share in it and say, by the way, if you're interested in it uh, and you have development skills, why don't you develop it and improve it? And that we share like that and we all get benefit from it. And what you end up with is stuff that, uh, you know, is often, uh, well, it's almost always as good. And uh, in many cases, it ends up way stronger because of the the breadth of the contribution. And and uh, and it's it's just we we find it's absolutely amazing. So what we did is we own some of our stuff. Uh, and Mitch, I'll let you give a couple examples of projects sure. we put out there and how people have contributed to it. Absolutely, yeah. So like you know we we made use of open source software heavily over the years, right? And so it's only only right for us to continue to give back when we're ready to develop and and, and have uh, software. So the biggest. Uh, I guess the biggest offerings that we've kind of open sourced and put out to the community is our Houston UI. Uh, so Houston is built on the cockpit project. Uh, so when it was about time for us to to really start looking into developing our own UI around our software or around our storage solution, um, really we rather than trying to reinvent the wheel and completely start from scratch, 
we saw this incredible project that we felt was getting really underused, um, and that's the cockpit project. And so we really started diving into that and, and started developing Houston UI modules around that. Um, so we've got a set of about eight or nine modules, I think, at this point. Um, now, three of them are our core to 45 drives hardware, so they're built uh, specifically for our, our hardware, but the rest of them um, are very much able to be used free and clear from anyone and get amazing benefits out of it. Uh, and the biggest one that we see time and time again that people love is the navigator. So it's the yes. built-in cloud. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. There's a funny story behind that. Uh, we were actually on the cockpit forums, and we saw a lot of people requesting time and time again, hey, it would be great if you guys built a, a fully featured file explorer inside of cockpit. And, and essentially what the devs came back with was, you know, that's a great idea, but we're not going to do that. I'm sure someone <laughs> will do it. Uh, and so one of our brilliant R&D engineers kind of saw that one day and said, I think I could do that. And, uh, and our man, R&D manager said, well, you want to take a crack at it? And then within a week, he had a prototype up and running, and that was kind of history from there. And so um, that is being used very, very heavily. Actually, the last we heard, um, the Fedora team was actually packaging that up uh, to be available uh, on their repos because we don't specifically make packages for Fedora. We, we support uh, Rocky Linux and Ubuntu uh, right now currently, and so those are the packages we build. But uh, So it's nice to see that uh, other people are taking, taking up the mantle and seeing our software uh, elsewhere. So talking about picking up the mantle and taking the software elsewhere, do I understand then that these cockpit modules, which, by the way, are fantastic, even things like your user management and your ability to visualize, you know, the drives inside of a server, all of these things bring tremendous value into cockpit. Are these designed to be used outside of 45 drives hardware? And if so, somebody's listening to this, they're like, hey, I want to give Houston UI a shot. How do they get started with it? Absolutely. Um, great, great question. So yes, the, the majority of them, and, and just quickly I'll rhyme those off, uh, the benchmark module, which is just a FIO wrap, a wrapper for FIO benchmarking, uh, which will also give you a nice graph report output at the end of the, the runs. Navigator, which we just discussed, file sharing. So this is SMB and NFS file sharing that has native Ceph support. So it will actually bring up, if it's a Ceph cluster, a Ceph file system, it'll bring up file layouts and it'll bring up CephFS quotas. Um, so we'll be aware of that. Uh, the last couple are identities. So that's user management, group management, lets you do Samba passwords, set your home directory, view kind of user login, logout uh, behavior. All that is built in there. And then obviously the ZFS module. So I will, I do have to say the ZFS module actually was developed by another team. Uh, we saw that and thought it was fantastic. Now, of course, we've adapted it and, and uh, made quite a bit of changes, added in ZFS send receive replication into it. Um, and some do, other Do you things. remember who it was? I don't offhand. I really okay. should. Wish um, we could give them credit, yes, but absolutely. it's in there. Uh, but I am going to send you guys to our GitHub uh, where you will be able to see where it was forked. Uh, I apologize for not having that. Um, and then uh, obviously our Ceph deploy. So Ceph deploy is really cool. Um, the name may leave some to be desired because if anyone knows Ceph, the original orchestration tool was called Ceph deploy. So it is not that. Uh, what it is is a, a UI wrapper built around Ceph Ansible. So rather than having to build a cluster through Ceph Ansible uh, through command line, it's a full wrapper around that where you can do it all through the UI. Now those modules and, and even the ones for 45 drives, you can find them on our GitHub uh, page, which is just at 45 drives. And also we have our own repo that we host as well uh, that you can get information from there. So I think it's repo.45drives.com. And, and if I could add just a little tiny thing to, to the whole Houston UI thing, uh, Houston was designed, we talk about targets for Houston. Houston was, number one, it's uh, uh, it, just to simplify look, the, the, the problem, the barrier, one of the barriers to Linux in general is that lack of expertise with it. So you create a UI and uh, you know GUI on top of it, uh, it makes things easier. But we also, we have this wide variety of people that use our tools and use our systems. Mm -hmm. So we designed it a uh, really, really important piece of that is, you know, some other things like a true NAS or the like, uh, you can use those. They accomplish the same thing. They put a GUI in there, make life easy. But we said, what if you're an expert? What if you like, uh, what if you're a command line person, right? Uh, you can still get benefit sometimes from going into a GUI. And, uh, but we made it to play uh, completely seamlessly command line 
you know, it's really just based on manipulating configs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so you can have the advantage if you're an expert user, you can come use it where it's convenient and then just flip into command line when you want, you know, that power and efficiency that you get with command line. That is know? such a fantastic point um, and, and because that is not the case, right? With TrueNAS and FreeNAS, they really want to keep you in, in the UI. And so if you go into the terminal, it really will not stick, uh, make changes that you make. And another really cool thing is there is a terminal module in our Houston UI as well. So you can start banging away in the command line, running commands, and then pop into another module and do some things. But then when you go back to the terminal, everything that you were running is just sitting there waiting for you, uh, which is just, uh, if you've spent a lot of time with FreeNAS, you'll know how great that is. And also I do have the name. So OptiMans is the name of the uh, person or persons that developed the original Cockpit, Cockpit ZFS manager. So a little shout out for him. So I want to I want to take a, a tiny detour if you'll allow me. So we're talking about like the Houston UI, and we've talked a bit about um, Ceph and particularly clustering with Ceph. So um, I I have two questions, both related to scalability. The first one is, okay, so Ceph tends to shine when it's it's running in kind of like a clustered state. It's uh, in my opinion, it seems like it's overkill for a single server. So I wondered, what is uh, what is the value of a single server? Like, do you do you run Ceph on a single server? And and th- I guess this is geared kind of at Mitch. I want more of a kind of a technical answer here. Yeah, absolutely, great question. So we very very heavily frown upon and try to keep our customers away from deploying anything less than four nodes. Three nodes is definitely a minimum. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Any of the benefits that you get from Ceph um, really are kind of disappear as you go down to two or even one node. Um, it, not that you can't do it. You certainly can. You could do some erasure coding and get some uh, fairly good redundancy on par with like a ZFS or any type of typical RAID array. Um, but yeah, the, the, the magic of Ceph really comes in when you have that high availability and the the uh, the monitors forming a quorum and having all of your uh, clients essentially being able to read and write simultaneously to n number of nodes. So yeah, definitely uh, something we we try to stay away from. So if you're buying a single server from us, it's Linux ZFS. and 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 ZFS yeah. is what we recommend, and uh, we just think that's by far best bang for your buck. Absolutely. And we do have paths for people, right? Let's say they do get to the point where they've completely maxed out a ZFS server and they're ready to try the clustering world. Uh, we have some some methods to get them back to that Ceph cluster and then be able to migrate that node that was a ZFS node into the cluster once the data has all been uh, moved over to Ceph. So that kind of leads me into my next one. We didn't actually plan this for the audience. These guys are just on the ball today. But I, my next question was going to be about um, what makes 45 drives kind of scalable. Well, I mean, look, that, that's it. A track, when we start talking to customers, it's the whole thing. We just encourage everybody to forward think and say, where are you today? How much data do you have today? Uh, what do you want to achieve? What do you need for performance? What are your files like? Do you have big files, small files? We just had a customer in today. We were talking about who had some troubles. They had 2.9 billion small files on their cluster. So figure out what your workload, figure out what you have, um, and then look forward. And then uh, that whole issue of where do you want to go? We always say to somebody, buy something with some extra headroom. Our smallest server we sell has four bays. We have an eight bay. We have 15. We go all the way up to 60 bays. And then we have our solid state drive machines that are similar and figure where you are. And if you're in single server territory, buy something, leave some headroom because everybody has data growth. And so you can grow by plugging things in. When you get to the end of a single server, uh, you have a decision to make. Do you buy a second single server or do you go for a cluster at that point? Uh, The decision-making criteria, and again, we take people, walk people through this, the decision-making criteria on it is, uh, I look at places that uh, why you'd want to stay with single servers, even though they're a little bit more of a pain in the butt and a little less scalable, uh, if you do an iSCSI. Mm-hmm. So Ceph is not great at iSCSI. Mm-hmm. That'd be one of the big reasons. The other reason, a single server on ZFS, we can get you tuned to a higher single uh, client transfer rate. So you think of throughput. We all hear about throughput from servers. And one distinction that we make 
and I don't see it made all that all that often and out there in the in the larger world. When you say I'm going to buy a server and it has X amount of throughput, and you go, well, what happens in a single client transfer? If that's aggregate, right, of all my connections, what happens in single client transfer? It becomes incredibly important in video, mm-hmm. and and you just have certain applications where you need to move you know, data and you want to saturate a 10 gigabit connection or, you know, 40 gigabits or something like that. And if you want to get incredibly high single client transfer, it's also a place you recommend recommend single servers. And if not, look at going to a cluster. Good. We'll get you a track where you can go seamlessly into a cluster. Once you're into a cluster, it's nirvana. Life is good from there. You get your four, uh, four nodes, you got a self-healing Ceph cluster, uh, time to expand, plug more drives in. If you got slots, if not, put another server in. Flip the switch. Tell the thing that the, the new server is part of it. You'll watch the data run down on your full nodes, and as it fills up on the other one, and it balances itself up, and it's good. You are becoming your way to becoming the old Maytag repairman. Oh. <laughs> so and if okay. sorry, go ahead, Mitch. Oh, sorry. I was just going to mention it too. A lot of times, people will think you know um, clustering is for people with a whole lot of data. And, and what we have try to really get out there is, you know, if you, if you only have a small amount of data to start, but you think, okay, there is a possibility that this could grow, this could scale very quickly, or even over time, um, we try to get out there that you can start with a Ceph cluster uh, and, and start very, very small and still have a fantastic experience and get that at a very, very reasonable price, right? Like we can do sub 20K Ceph clusters for with, you know, you know 100 20, 120, 150 terabytes of usable space there where you have multiple nodes running in a cluster and then you're you're ready, right? You're ready to scale if this thing needs to scale. Um, but then more than that, you've got high availability, right? You've got um, the ability to have maintenance happening during regular work hours. You don't have to rush into the to the office at 4 a.m. if one server goes down during a backup or something IT like staff that. with their feet up with a drink in their hand? <laughs> yeah, oh. right? So, no panic. No. Yeah, exactly. So it brings a lot of extra benefits to the table. Um, and I think 45 drives, uh, we use Ceph in a lot of uh, niches and a lot of markets that traditionally people think that's not a great place to put Ceph. And we've done a ton of work at optimizing performance for those workloads for force and and the way that we do samba and nfs i don't think we've seen any other vendor uh do it the way we do it i mean we do have the ability to do standard uh, nfs ganesha the way the that ceph would deploy it but we also have a lot of uh, different ways that we can do things to really maximize the performance that you can get out of a ceph cluster when you're exporting it via you know additional protocols like smb nfs s3 iSCSI, etc and, and so let me go back to that video niche. Great. Uh, video workload. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the agony in the video world, uh, you know, they got storage zoo and server zoo. So they got a bunch of servers and maybe uh, 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 USB hard drives all over the place, yeah. store their projects on it. They load, they, you know, they, they need they get a lot of data when you run an editing program, uh, big files. It's about you know, it's about transfer speed from your storage device and into latency, your editing, yeah. pro, right? And getting rid of latency. Yeah. So that's the video world. So what do they do? They, they they put an SSD, typically a SATA SSD, say 400 megabytes per second. Mm-hmm. And they put that in their PC and their, or their Mac, whatever they're editing on, and they download the project mm-hmm. onto locally. They edit locally, then they push it back up. And uh, that's life for them. It's a real pain in the butt. But they get decent performance. It feels pretty snappy. Uh, we move people on, and we have a, a no, quite a number of clients that uh, edit directly off server. So to do that, you need 10 gigabit network infrastructure, which used to be exotic. You know, five years ago, it cost a whack. It's it's no big deal right now for anybody who's doing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, put in 10 gigabit network, and you put in a storage server that you can tune up and you need high single client transfer. So we can get people, you know, it's routine for us to get people to single client transfer that we can pull a file down at 10 gigabits per second. We can saturate the lines. Mm -hmm. So you think about that. I'm now loading my video into my, uh, in in my editor at a speed that's two and a half times my internal SATA SSD. So again, it's heaven when you get there. 
the absolute heaven when you get there. Yeah, and it's just it's just a great experience to edit like that, and and you've left all the workload behind. Your filing is now it's not a chore and it's not mistake prone, mm-hmm. and and uh, and you got snap your performance. So it's it's just wonderful. So uh, my question there is, if you're using a single a single backend, so you talked a little bit about how you might optimize it, but uh, my immediate question becomes like, how do you how do you back that up? Like, I imagine that becomes part of your conversation. At least the the uh, clients that are are really sharp would be asking you, okay, like if I'm not going with the cluster because it's better, and you've explained all the ways that it's better, like how do I protect that data? Like, what would you tell them? Yeah, look, get into the whole thing of data protection and, uh, you know, the minute you go to a central server, look, if you want to, it's a, it's a big part of what we do too. Uh, you know, you got to provide safe storage and how do you provide safe storage? Uh, you know, number one, you get rid of storage zoo, right? And get your files off all, you know, a scattering of workstations and external drives, et cetera, get them on a, on a, on a centralized server or cluster. Once you do that, and there's just some common elements to what you have to do, harden your root. Harden your root, harden your root, so nobody can get in anywhere funky on it. Uh, RAID protects you against hard drive failure. Okay, backup is is critical to protecting against a whole bunch of perils. I always say meteor strike. Never know when a meteor is going to strike. Uh, backup is doing that, and you know physically remove your backup when you can. Uh, and then we're coming out with some really interesting stuff in ransomware, which is a problem. And, and you know we realize that we've been running ransomware protection around here. Um, and in some interesting ways, and, you know, ransomware protection, snapshotting, intensive snapshotting, right? Uh, and uh, we've actually just the process for the, just a boat to roll out uh, server-side ransomware protection where we've worked out our own uh, uh, monitoring and, and sorting uh, to be able to sort through files and figure out what's been ransomwared and, and what's regular files. And uh, anyway, it's a long story. We don't want to talk about all the details because it's security stuff. Mm-hmm. But basically, we can ransomware, uh, pop a ransomware uh, onto our, our test bed. Uh, we'll pick up ransomware in, in less than a second and, and shut something down. And then once you, you so got a few files damaged, but you know exactly which files are damaged, you snapshotting to roll it back. So that, that's, the, that's it. Backup. And it's, you know, the backup strategy is the same as anything else. Uh, get it, uh, you know, figure out what you need backup for get your backup server separated. Ideally, you're going to get off-prem snapshot, ransomware detection, and a plan to roll back on ransomware when inevitably you do get hit. That's what we'd say for data security. Yeah, and then just to speak about how we would do backups on those uh, single servers when they don't do a cluster. So we use EFS Send Receive, which is snapshot-based replication, which, of course, I mean, if anyone is familiar with the the different ways you could do backup, um, the best possible way is to go underneath the storage in using actual block uh, replicas rather than having to have a something on, on the file system crawl the file system like an rsync or something like that right so what we would do is we would have a, an identical ZFS server um, either on-prem in another building or sorry in another room or off-prem somewhere else and our ZFS Houston module has ZFS send receive actually it's called Zend. Uh, I'm not a fan of the name because I can't say it right but what it will <laughs> do <laughs> is it will create snapshots uh, very very like you can set it up to do you know, every 10, 15 minutes throughout the working day, really whatever schedule you want. And then you'll set up a replication job task. So it will send the ZFS uh, block deltas since the last time a snapshot ran to the replicated server. Um, And then of course you've got protection everywhere. So you have a a second copy of your server um, on a secondary site. And then you also have very, very robust snapshot policy to roll back any files that you may need to roll back. Um, Pair that with um, shadow copy, where from the Windows side, if you're using Windows SMB, you literally just right click your file, click previous versions, and you can grab whichever uh, snapshot to copy that file you want. Um, so then you've got a, a really well built out, um, not only snapshot policy, but also backup strategy. So uh, one of the questions that, that I field in, in my line of work, and I imagine you guys get this too, is while it may be best practice to have two identical, uh, in terms of size and types of drives and stuff like that, is it required for, uh, ZFS send and receive? Like, can you, if you know, for example, that like my main server needs to have 
uh, space because they they use this for scratch space, but I don't want to back it up. Can I have a smaller server and still do the snapshot send and receive, or does it does it literally have to be the same size? No, that's a wonderful point. Um, and no, absolutely not. So you you can choose at the data set level which data set you wish to do your ZFS send receive, um, or of course if you wanted the whole thing, you do it at the pool level. But no, certainly you can keep your any any data sets that you wish not to be sent to the backup server. That's uh, yeah, very trivial to do so. And an older, slower is you know, oh, it's, yeah, a, it's exactly. a repurposing you don't need spot. The same, yeah, specs either. I should say right. Like a lot of times, we'll we'll uh, have for the backup server or for the the, the target that we're going to back up to. It's it's much lower spec, less RAM, slower CPU uh, for customers. Unless some customers, right, they they want to be able to spin that up at a moment's notice as the new production server. And if they want to do that, sometimes that's where they'll uh, they won't skimp on the actual hardware. So you guys, um, I, I want to talk a little bit. So we talked, uh, we went from the high level and then we kind of went low. I want to bring us back up to kind of a higher level and talk about um, the service model that you guys have, like the customer service model. I, I think that it's kind of interesting and I thought you might uh, expand a little bit in terms of like how, how you deal with the customer and how you serve them. Like one of Noah's biggest thing is he really wants to serve the community in the best way. Like he has a servant's attitude. And so uh, when we were chatting, he and I were chatting about uh, you guys, it seems like you have the same, like a similar mentality. So I thought I'd give you a chance to, to tell us a little bit about that. To divert into company culture and people for a second. Uh, I really strong views in that, uh, you know, I'm entrepreneur by, you know, by cursed <laughs> nature or whatever else. Uh, uh, been, a, been a good and interesting life. But uh, a long time ago, when I first started in business, I said, I want to create a company that I want to work in. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it and, uh, you know, how to create a culture and say, you know, a culture where people want to come to work. And uh, I'm a believer, uh, I, I won't get any reasons why, but it, all kinds of people come to the same conclusion. Uh, you know, your happiness life is not about your rights and we need rights and everything else, but it's not about your rights and what you get out of the life. It's about what you put in. Uh, we humans are happy when we're serving other people. We love to get our recognition and reward back for doing it. But uh, we've created that culture and looked at that. If, if we want to create a successful organization, I put this all together. Uh, we have a value statement on the wall and top of it is says you don't work for the company. Companies don't actually have much money. Uh, they're just a conduit for money, right? And in organizing how people serve. So everybody in here, including myself, serves other people. That's what we come to work for. Our customers, number one, they pay our wage. And and that's our big piece of our you know, job fulfillment. The, you the, connect the your you there. connect your clients to your employees. Oh it would completely. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 we teach everybody in here that we don't just deliver a product or service. We, you, you deliver an experience. And by the way, your experience at work, be nice to somebody, make somebody happy, make their day. They get happiness back. And it just feels good to go to work when you do that. So you carry that thinking on, you know, there's a certain way that everybody interacts and everybody just learns it and everybody makes their own decisions. It's, it's cultural and it just carries and it works wonderfully. And then when you get that, we, you know, we get a things out in our actual service model. Uh, you know, so many times you get a vendor who sells your hardware. Somebody else might give you software services. You got a problem. They say, oh, that's the hardware's fault or it's the whatever. Or, or then they both point and they go, it's the networking people's fault. Right. <laughs> and you go, and, and we've all been there. Right. And I don't Very blame this. So. I don't blame the people doing it because there's truth to it a lot of the time. But we look at that and we say, there is only one good outcome, which is our customer gets back up and running and says, thank you. I'm really glad we're up and running. So our service model, we will go tackle just about anything. Now, with all the disclaimers, you know, one of them would be we know very little about this. Hmm. The other one would be say we know about it and you understand there's a risk. You might put some hours in and it might not work out uh, and it might be a fundamental problem. But we have a very, very competent group. And so many times we'll go in, well, look, just we configure and set something up for somebody. We know that we not only have to put in a storage server in that works, we have to help them reach across through their network all the way to the clients and the client software and make everything work together. And if we don't do that, we haven't delivered an experience and somebody's unhappy, right? They'll walk away and say, yeah, the server works, everything's great, but the client's not up and running. There's no value in that. So that, that's our fundamentals of 
how we look at service. You know, in my experience with you guys, one of the things that blew me away is you let the customer decide when they have had success. So, uh, you know, and, and we had a client, and they asked you guys, they said, well, what exactly does it mean? Like you say, you'll set it up for us. When is that complete? And your answer back was, I don't know. It's your environment. You tell us when everything is working the way you want. And then we fulfilled our commitment to you. And I just I almost fell off of my chair. I thought, wow, that's a company that gets it. Yeah, no, thanks. We, we, we love it. We, we love doing it it's in our culture. Our customers so get it. Uh, it's it, it, and it works so wonderfully. It's both profitable for us. And it's cost effective. As I said, you can go buy proprietary enterprise and you're at five times the price. So it's wonderful for our customers. Uh, our employees here win on it because everybody that works here, you know, I won't speak for absolutely I'm sure somebody has bad days at work or whatever else, but you walk in the place, people say, my God, people, the place is buzzing. It's <laughs> happy. Uh, we have our company stand up once a week. We've got the whole company is getting bigger and bigger yeah. now. And each group puts together a little report. And I walk away exhilarated all the time from the stuff we're doing and the you know, jobs we're doing for customers, the stuff projects we're selling, uh, the stories. You know, today we had the one about the uh, the, the uh, customer who came in and they're, they're having problems because their cluster is kind of grinding down yep. and they were finding it, that it was using up more space. Yeah, they looked right at amplification. that. Yeah, they, right amplification. And discovered there were tiny files and there were 2.9 billion of them. <laughs> But we actually found a solution that made everything work for them. And I'm going, yeah, just love it. That, that's it. Customer's happy. We're happy. Uh, customer's bank account's good. Ours is good. Uh, and everybody's having a good day at work. Doesn't get any better than that. I love it. The ability for nerds to go to work and then go and serve people. Just a couple minutes left in the hour, Dr. Milburn. I want to ask if you could give me some examples of some cool or wow projects that 45 Drives has worked on. What are you proud of? What are you excited about? Uh, well, yeah, in, in, in addition to creating Nerdvana <laughs> that we just talked about, uh, what are we proud of? Uh, I, I look at it and I look at, at customer projects. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I think I mentioned USC, yeah, UCSD, UCSD uh, uh, Wildfire Project, uh, Allen Brain Institute, yeah. uh, you know, brain scanning, brain research. From, uh, and uh, oops, I'm just getting a look there and I'm going, I, I, I just never quite know if we're... Uh, most of them I know we can talk about them. Uh, whoops. Uh, and, uh, and and our high-performance yeah, people, yeah, we love those. So high ingest rate, huge clusters uh, uh, that perform at the cutting edge. We get to be part of that. True Nirvana for us. Uh, and we're on the absolute cutting edge. Real proud. We get to brag about it. But I also love when we get uh, small clients, my buddy Ray J., uh, Ray J, small video production company locally. I've known him for 25 years. This guy had the most brilliant system where he built this shelf, his own woodworking, mm -hmm. that had about, uh, I'd say, about 75 uh, external US, USB hard drives. <laughs> yeah, and, and he had uh, a system oh, was ha hanging cables that and, and little addresses uh, on everything, and he just plug it into his Mac. Oh, wow. And uh, we transferred him over to a 45-drive server <laughs> and uh, changed his life on it. And uh, we love that one. Uh, development projects. Mitch, why don't you just I'll give you a last minute? I'm sorry, Dr. Melbourne. We're, we're the music in my ears means we're out of time. There's so much stuff that we could get to. And I want to thank both of you, uh, both Dr. Milburn, president and founder of 45 Drives, as well as lead storage architect Mitch Hall, uh, a guest this hour on Ask Noah. Thank you both for joining us. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Love to see you again. Yeah, yeah. We'll get you back. There's, like I say, much more that we could talk about. Again, music in our ears means we're out of time. Hey, if you enjoyed the episode, head over to podcast.asknoahshow.com. You'll find all of the articles and references we use to build the show, well as all of, all of the resources and references um, that these guys were talking about throughout the night. We'll see you back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.